Welcome back, folks, to The Africanist. I am your host, Dr. Bamba Jai, and our guest today is Dr. Sheikh Anter Babu. Dr. Babu is a historian of Islam and the modern West African Muslim diaspora. He joined the history department of the University of Pennsylvania in 2002. Educated at University Sheikh Antajub de Dakar and Michigan State University, Dr. Babu is the author of Fighting the Greater Jihad, Ahmadou Bamba and the founding of Muridiya of Senegal, 1853-2013, Ohio University Press, 2007. A French translation of the book was released by Kachala under the title The Jihad the Lam in 2011. His latest book, The Muridiya on the Move, Islam, Migration, and Placemaking, Ohio University Press 2021, is a multi-sided project that explores strategies of placemaking among West African Muslim immigrants in Paris, New York City, and selected cities in West and Central Africa. Dr. Babu is the author of numerous articles that appeared in African Affairs, Journal of African History, International Journal of African Historical Studies, Journal of Religion in Africa, Africa Today, and other scholarly journals in the United States and in France. He has contributed chapters to five edited volumes on Sufi Islam, migration, Islamic education, Senegalese politics, and the African diaspora. Dr. Babu, welcome to The Africanist. Bamba, thank you for having me. Our conversation today will be centered on your latest book, Muridia on, on the Move. Who are the Murids? What do we know about this community that originated in Senegal and has been migrating to different horizons for decades now? The Murids, who are they? Well, the Murid are disciples of Sheikh Ahmadou Bamba. And uh, Sheikh Ahmadou Bamba is a Sufi leader, originator of perhaps one of the only Tariqa or Sufi organization founded by a black man, as far as I know. Uh, the history of the Muridia is rooted in late 19th century Senegal. But over time, the Muridia has been able to reinvent herself, itself in many contexts. Uh, colonial Senegal, then post-colonial Senegal. And now it has become a global diaspora that is found in five continents. Uh, and this book uh, is mostly interested in reconstructing the history of that diaspora across three continents, Africa, Europe, and North America. So you talked about the founder of the Muridia, Sheikh Ahmadou Bamba. And Sheikh Ahmadou Bamba came from a family of, of clerics at a time when many clerics seemed content with accommodating the ruling class that often indulged in unethical and vile behavior, including slavery. What was the attitude of Sheikh Ahmadou Bamba towards that ruling class and his vision of the role of a cleric in a given society, like Senegal, for instance. Yes, Shab uh, Ahmadou Bamba uh, belonged to a family with a long tradition of learning. Uh, that in my first book, which is a reconstruction of the Ahmadou Bamba's intellectual biography, I uh, offer. Uh, a reconstruction of the history of his family from Futa in Senegal in the late uh, 18th century uh, to West Central Senegal, uh, in the area of Baal, the province of Baal, where actually his family uh, finally settled. So one uh, certainly thing that seems to be unique or to some extent uh, quite uh, unusual uh, in Amadou Bamba is that very early on, uh, he was extremely critical of the politics and ethics of ulama or Muslim learned men, including his own father, who was a judge and a qadi for the kings of Kayor. 
uh, at a very young age, uh, he was critical of um, slavery, as I actually explained in my first book. Uh, he was critical of the collaboration uh, between Muslim learned men, uh, ulama, with the ruling class, the Chebdo, the ruling class, uh, Samai pagan, because they call themselves Muslims. But for many of these leaders, uh, such as Amaru Bamba, their faithfulness to Islam was doubtful. So he was very critical of them, and he did not actually limit his criticism as traditionally Muslim, especially Sufi, would do that is muted criticism or criticism articulated in terms of nasiha or advice to the king, as is known in Muslim tradition, he was quite vocal. He was quite vocal in rejecting their ethics, their politics, and their practices, and that sometimes led him into trouble, uh, even before the coming of the French with the King Lajor, the history that is, that is quite well known because it's told widely in Ahmadou Bamba's hagiography. So now, the question that might be addressed for you to answer to the question, where did this ethic that Ahmadou Bamba embodies actually come from? Uh, in my work, I, I find two sources of this. One is biographical. Uh, Ahmadou Bamba lived in the period of trouble. He grew up in a period of trouble. It's the end of the Atlantic slave trade, but it's also the beginning of French conquest of West Africa, and particularly West Central Senegal, moving from Selwi to the north, uh, Gore uh, to West Senegal, these traditional French folk communes, and taking over the hinterland of, 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 of Senegal. It is this, this period that actually Amadou Bamba grew up. And his family paid a heavy price to the violence of the time. Uh, I explained that his grandfather um, died violently, uh, Balaisa. Uh, his uncle Abdul Qadir also died violently. Uh, I explained that his mother, Mamjara Buso, uh, died after they migrated forcibly, uh, forcibly migrated actually to Porokhan in the area of, of Eastern Senegal. So he's paid a toll, his own family paid a toll, and his father also migrated from Bawal to Salum and from Salum to Kajor and so forth. So he did suffer in his blood and in his flesh and bone, he did suffer that, that period of trouble and violence in uh, Senegal. But Sheikh Hamadou Bamba is also a disciple of, Gaddafi, of, of Ghazali. And Ghazali is known as a scholar who was very suspicious of what he called unjust rulers. And his advice uh, to Muslims was uh, to make sure not to know and not to be known by rulers and certainly never visit them and stay away from them. So I think when we take that kind of uh, 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 um, inheritance uh, from uh, Ghazali's own work, uh, that to me is at the center of Ahmadou Bamba's ethics, then you also look at the, his own history in Senegal and the violence that visited his family. This explains that very early on, Ahmadou Bamba actually separated themselves from traditional ulamas and develop an ethic, a character, a temperament that was certainly unusual at the time. Awesome. So the central theme of your book is migration or mobility among Moorid communities. And migration has been also very important to the spread of Muridia and the message of Shah Ahmadu Bamba. And Bamba himself was constantly moving between places, whether within Senegal or outside of Senegal. Could you expand on the relationship between the Muridia and migration in general and how migration contributes to forming Murid identity in general? Migration was foundational to the Muridia. As I explained in the book and in my earlier book, my first book, for Ahmadou Bamba, migration uh, had two purposes. One was pedagogical. Uh, Ahmadou Bamba himself was a Sufi. And Sufi do not like to mingle with people in general unless it's necessary. And Ahmadou Bamba also write about that, that sometimes circumstances that demand that the Sheikh actually mingle uh, to help cure the disease of society 
but it is preferable for the sheikh if, if that is possible. That does not hurt society or harm society to stay away, uh, to escape temptation. Because as we know, Sufi are very wary of uh, materialism and how mingling with people, how uh, Satan actually uh, can use uh, our own flesh, our own uh, carnal need to corrupt us. And staying away sometimes from um, the noise, uh, the preoccupation um, of society uh, is seen as a way of protecting your soul and certainly sh uh, 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 shelving you against a Satan's a temptation. Yes. So from an ethical standpoint, from the point, from the standpoint of pedagogy, uh, isolation from the from the noise uh, of society is something that they value very much. And to some extent, in the early years of the Muridia, Sheikh Ahmed Wamba was very much uh, motivated to move away from the noise and from people in order to find a place where he can educate his disciple uh, in the Tarbiyah tradition that he contributed actually to invent to some extent uh, in the case of Senegal. So his early migration uh, from, I mean, voluntary, because there is also involuntary migration, which we can discuss at some point, but his early voluntary migration, for example, from Kajor to Bawal, uh, and then from Bakebal to Darussalam, and some from Darussalam to Tuba, and from Tuba Mbake to Tuba Jolof, those are voluntary migration that Amadou Bamba himself enacted. And he indicated clearly that at that time, his search for connection to God, for closeness to God, his willingness to educate his disciple in a suitable environment where they are not distracted by the, the, uh, the, the everyday life of society was something that motivated his movement. But I think Ahmad Bam was also moving from big cities uh, in order to some extent to escape French colonial rule. And clearly that's what the French understood. They were very suspicious of the fact that Ahmadou Bamba always wanted to inhabit liminal space, borders, for example, the border between um, provinces of Kajor, Bawal, and Salu. Uh, for example, when he settled in Tuba uh, in around 1888, 1889, one of the first reports that the French actually wrote about Ahmadou Bamba dated from that period. And, and the, 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 at the core of the report was, why is he moving away? Why is he inhabiting this border between three provinces? What is he hiding? He must be hiding something. And I think to some extent, Amadou Bamba wanted also to escape the eye of the French in order to be able to construct the society that he wanted to, to, to construct. Mm -hmm. You also argue in the book that Murid migration defies the push-pull theory of mobility, as well as uh, what you call the narrow uh, supply and demand-based labor migration model that informs most theories of international migration. So my question is, what are the particularities of Murid migration then? Why doesn't it fit uh, the labor-based model or the push-pull theory? Migration theory is very much instrumentalist. Uh, to a large extent, it's informed by theories that articulate uh, push factors and pull factors. Uh, economy is always at the center. Uh, culture is peripheral. And I'm arguing that this rigid model of an overarching theory of migration, to some extent, overlook individual experiences. So that people are talk about in terms of numbers and statistics in abstract way. Um, and they are not really the agency to some extent is not recognized the way it should be. So what I'm arguing here is that you cannot capture Murit migration without understanding Murit culture. To me, uh, culture is central uh, to Murit migration. You cannot understand Murit migration without understanding Ahmadou Bamba's biography. You cannot understand Murid migration without understanding Murid pedagogy of Tarbiya. Uh, in the context of Senegal, it's very clear, uh, you know, French scholar who wrote about this and others talk about Murid pioneers or frontier Murid, the moving Murid. 
many of those cities that are those villages that were constructed from west Senate, west uh, western western ball uh, to the salum area following um the railroad between senegal and mali you cannot explain that migration only by focusing for example on 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 peanut cultivation on on demand and supply of labor it moved beyond that uh, because what was really interested in uh, amadou bamba particularly was not in in his own actually rendering the own construction of their history do not actually emphasize what we scholar emphasize what we see they emphasize as aspect being away from the city uh being able to be in an environment where you can educate where you can provide disciple a holistic system of education where you educate the body you educate the mind and you educate the soul we are only concerned as scholar with the body we don't look at the mind we don't look at the soul and murid are very much interested in that and i'm arguing that those cultural dimension that in my view shape murid migratory experience are even more salient in contemporary murid migration uh, in the model world we live in and as you can see uh, in in the book I, I look at space making in this process to understand how this ethic of migration that we can trace back to the origin of the muridia in late 19th senegal actually apply also uh, to modern murid migration across europe uh, africa uh, the united states and elsewhere <laughs> So to still, you know, stay on the theme of of migration, uh, there is an interesting trinary that seems to characterize the the Muridia, and the trinary is composed of space, place, and memory. In other words, in every place that the Murid community exists, there also seem to be a claiming, reclaiming, or creation of a space to memorialize the legacy of Shah Madhubamba. How has this trinary uh, transformed the identity, the Murid identity, from a marginalized religious order of migrant peanut farmers to a powerful economic political and social force in Senegalese cities, for instance. I believe that to understand Murid space making in the diaspora, we need to move back again uh, to Senegal and to the experience of Amadou Bamba. In my first book, I devote the last chapter, chapter seven, uh, to what I call the building of Daral Murid or Daral Islam in Jurbel. The argument I'm making there was that when Amadou Bamba was assigned uh, residence in Jurbel in 1912, and he was when he was moved from the French Quarter uh, to where Kursering uh, Tuba in Jurbel is right now, or Kurgumak, if you want, uh, in 1930s, when Sheikh Ahmed Bamba understood that perhaps that he will spend the remaining of his life under French custody in Jurbel, he endeavored to build what I call Dar al Murid in order to institutionalize the Muridia, but also in order to make life under Dar al-Harb or Dar al-Kufr, the land of the French, tolerable to him. And how was he able to do it? I think Sheikh Ahmed Bamba used many tools, uh, including among them, those tools, Islamic archaeology and geometry, uh, including pilgrimages, but also including the organization of Muslim religious events, such as the Gamu, which he was very important in his life in Jurbel. Later on, the Magal will be part of it, but different from the way we do it today. But also using um, 
reshaping space, for example, organizing the cemetery to the east, building the mosque to the west, or um, asking disciple, this major disciple to come to Jurbel and to live uh, around him in their own neighborhood, uh, reshaping uh, the space itself, large street, always square, using the square. Uh, we, we know the importance of the straight line and the square, for example, in Islamic geometry and architecture. It's Sirat al-Mustaqim, the straight path. Uh, we know that mosques are always square or, or rectangular, uh, never tri triangular. So I think Shahmadu Bamba drove from that kind of Muslim youth of space in order to carve for himself what I call Dar al-Murid. So that even he understood that he was living under French colonial rule. Of course, the district officer was French, the governor was French, but the space in Durbel was part of Muslim space, clearly. When you look at what is done there, when you look at the content of the space itself, the pilgrimage, the centering of Qasida, uh, the organization of, of, of religious festivals, the cemetery, all of those things, the content as well as the continent, all of that was really Islamic and made this space a murid space and uh, a Dar al-Islam within what the French, uh, what within the Dar al-Kufr that the French Senegal actually represented. So I'm arguing that murid in the diaspora continue to replicate that system. And in this context, the biography of Sheikh Hamad Obama is becoming extremely important. Um, for example, look at Gabon. Um, what the Muid did when they migrated there, the first thing they did was to actually identify places associated with Ahmad Obama's exile there. And whenever they found that space, they tried to own it. Uh, they tried to buy it. And once they bought it, they memorialized it. They build shrine there. For example, the mosque, Sheikh Ahmed Obama today in Libreville. You go to Lamberene, they go, they have not been able to buy the place, but they have been going there, visiting every year. Uh, they have gone to Mayumba. So all these spaces that can be associated where you can actually trace Ahmed Obama's footprint or body imprint are called part of Tuba and part of the Muridir and something that is part of the cultural patrimony. So that by taking those space, owning them first, and then memorializing them, what they do is to turn these ordinary secular space of the city into extraordinary sacred space of the Muridia. And anybody who go to those space actually can identify them and certainly know that these are not ordinary space. These are definitely extraordinary space. We see this in uh, the context of, of Gabon, we see that in the context of, of Cote d'Ivoire, for example, Grand Bassin, where Ahmed Bamba stopped, there is Kershia Ahmed Bamba there, the house of Ahmed Bamba there, there is a mosque there. All events that actually relate to Ahmed Bamba's uh, short, short stopover in Grand Bassin on his way to Gabon in 1895. So the same thing that I'm discussing here uh, outside Senegal uh, is also being done in, in Senegal itself. You go to uh, Porohan, where Sheikh Amadou Bamba's mother is buried and where Amadou Bamba grew up uh, from uh, around 1863 uh, to roughly uh, the, the, uh, the late 19th century. You go there, the spaces where he lived, or people believe that he lived and believe that his mother lived are being uh, memorialized. The, 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 the well where his mother drew water, where he stayed, the cemetery where people believe that he has been um, she was buried. All of those spaces now are memorialized and sacralized and people go to visit uh, every single year. Uh, you can see it uh, in Biakale, where his father, Momar Antasali, is buried. You can see it in, of course, Tubambake, uh, but also in Tubadjolov. So there is a, a really a, a intentional uh, ambition here to enshrine Bamba's memory, uh, to enshrine Bamba's biography in space. And this is not only limited to Senegal, to Africa, it's also something we try to do in the diaspora, in Europe, in North America, or wherever you find Murid uh, in different ways. Mm -hmm. And to, to still talk about that claiming or reclaiming of, of spaces, in your book, you give 
uh, you talk about an anecdote that happened in 2017, when on the day of the Nyariraka, which is uh, celebrated in Saint Louis, the city of Saint Louis, Senegal, the wind knocked off Governor Federbe's uh, statute on that same day, and then all over the internet and even popular conversations, people were talking about the symbolism of that event, and then calling for again to uh, rename Place Federbe in Saint Louis after Sheikh Ahmadou. After Sheikh Mohammed Bin could you could you come back to that episode because I think it's very interesting in relation to place making and memorialization. Yes, uh, you know, but when you look at my book, you 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 realize that I am among those scholars who do not look space as a substantive reality, but as a constructed reality. Uh, space is not a given; it's not created by epiphany. Um, it, it's a constructed reality, and, and any constructed reality, of course, is a contested reality. So, um, and uh, Murid, since the 1970s, actually, have been asking for the removal of the statue of Federbe. Federbe, of course, is uh, one of the most uh, influential French governor of Senegal. He is credited as being the founder of modern Senegal. He wrote a, a bloody war uh, against uh, uh, traditional rulers in Senegal, including Muslim who fought him using the concept of jihad, and 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 and, and unified Senegal under, under the French flag. And uh, Federbe is also a towering figure in Saint Louis. Uh, the major bridge bears his name, Pont Federbe. Uh, the statue uh, that is located where the, his study is located is called Place Ferreira. It's the heart of Saint Louis, the city of Saint Louis. And since 1970, we have been asking for the removal of the statue and the rename, renaming of the, space, of the quarter of the space uh, after Amadou Bamba. And of course, uh, the, 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 uh, some faction of the population of Saint Louis have been resisting this call. The Senegalese government has been resisting it. Uh, and of course, the people of Saint Louis has been resisting it. Now, because as I said, you know, uh, 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 space is a contested reality, and in Saint Louis, you have a people that were French citizens of the four communes, and these people do not look at the history of Saint Louis the same way that French subject. Uh, such as the Murid and others who lived in the Protectorate look actually at, at Saint Louis. They look at Saint Louis, uh, they look at the French as co-citizens, if you wish. And they look at, they, they believe that there is something that is worth preserving in the colonial history of, of Saint Louis. So that you have this clash of two post-colonial identities. The post-colonial identities of the former citizens, former French citizens of Saint Louis, who still believe that they, it's worth preserving the memory of colonial rule and federal because these are citizens like them. And then the post-colonial identity of Murid and people, the former protagonist French subject, who believe that this is shameful for the history of Senegal, that this history should be erased and Senegalese should turn their back on this. And particularly for the Murid, celebrating the memory of Amadou Bamba, having that um, place uh, named after him, because this is the place in front of the governor's palace where Amadou Bamba was tried and then sent to exile. Renaming all this pl place mean uh, really honoring Sheikh Amadou Bamba, but also affirming the dignity of, of, of black people. So what you have then here is the, the class of these, the clash between these two post-colonial identities, some of them valuing uh, 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 their French colonial past, others contesting this past as a past that need to be erased, need to be forgotten, and in order to reaffirm the dignity of Senegalese people and beyond Senegal, even the dignity of black people in general, you've got to erect certainly uh, 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 really spaces that are named after Amadou Bamba and uh, people like him who resisted colonial rule rather than continuing to memorialize uh, the uh, colonial past.
of chapters of your book you, you talk about the Senegalese community experience in New York City and and New York has one of the most vibrant Mauritian diaspora uh, that 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 exists could you tell us more about the trajectory of Mauritian migration to New York City or North America in general but also some of the issues they have faced over the decades The Senegalese diaspora in New York City is perhaps the most <laughs> uh, 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 scrutinized, you know, diaspora in terms of intellectual uh, and academic interest. People have been have written extensively on this diaspora. It's not the largest, certainly. Uh, the dias- Senegalese diaspora in Cote d'Ivoire, in Italy, in Spain, and in France. Uh, Muslim diaspora, I mean, in 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 Cote d'Ivoire, in Italy, in France, is is much larger. than the diaspora um, in, in New York. But what makes this diaspora really stand out is what it was able to achieve, uh, turning um, central Harlem uh, uh, into, into Murid space uh, in, in, in African space in general. Uh, and the Murid have here an oversized lull because you can call them the primo immigrant. They are the first one to settle in this area of New York in the late 1980s, uh, early 1990s, at a time when no, when uh, uh, at least no white people dare to stay in that neighborhood after that, where uh, white flight, uh, crime uh, and drug uh, had turned Harlem into some kind of desert, really. I'm, I'm not exaggerating by saying this. Um, some scholar who wrote about Arlem at this time uh, have chapter they call Arlem Nightmare or something like that, just to say the dismal condition in which Harlem was before the coming of this Senegalese. So that they, they really, and um, journalists particularly were interested in these uh, Senegalese murid at the time, um, uh, their sartorial tradition, meaning the way they dressed, Uh, their business practices, hawking stuff, uh, selling stuff in the street in New York City. These are something that people haven't seen in a long time. Of course, New York has the tradition of, of uh, Black particularly selling stuff in the street. But by the time the Murid settled in the street in Midtown Manhattan uh, and in Harlem, this, this practice has been uh, to some extent diminished a lot or if it existed, it was confined somewhere around 145th Street in Harlem. The Murid really brought this tradition back in the heart of, 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 of Midtown Manhattan, including Fifth Street and other major uh, large street tourist area in, in Times Square, of course, uh, and other um, tourist area in New York City. And journalists wrote about them marveling at their, create, their entrepreneurship and their cunning, uh, their ability to survive uh, in New York City. Uh, and these are people who came without a penny. And these are uh, people who came knowing no English. And people marveled at the really kind of ability to survive in an environment where they should have been lost. So that these interests actually, to some extent, um, made uh, Uh, Central Harlem, particularly the area between Frederick Douglass Boulevard and Malcolm X Boulevard, or called Little Senegal, really a focus of, of scholars, particularly anthropologists, political scientists, sociologists, and later on historians. And there is even a movie that is named um, Little Senegal. Now, you're right. Um, this, this is the compli- complicated community, if you wish. They live with African-American in the neighborhood, but uh, The relationship would not always move. Um, when Murid came to Senegal, these are people that are traditionally educated, 
Most of them came from small villages and small cities in Senegal. Most of them were educated in traditional Murid school, whether it's the uh, working school uh, or the Dara, uh, or these are people who went to Quranic education in Senegal. They don't have a Western education. Many of them don't know much, don't know nothing, in fact, about the history of Black uh, in the United States. They don't know about the history of the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, they don't know about the discrimination that Black people suffered. They didn't know all of that. And many of them actually felt that Black people in New York City are their, their, their brothers, that they should get along. They, they should understand each other. That was, of course, not the case. Uh, and you have uh, many instances of, of tension and conflict between the two communities, misunderstanding of the two communities. Of course, over time, Black people, uh, Black people's own understanding and construction of, of Black identity was very much something they learned also from TV or from, from other people in the street. And they shared the prejudice that other people in the United States had of black of, of African American people, and you can say the same um, uh, uh, about African American too. Many of them actually who imagine um, Africans as king and queens uh, realize that these are poor people uh, who don't know how to speak English, whose manners and ways uh, certainly as they see is unbecoming in the city in the city, and that created some kind of attitude that African actually saw as some form of, of disrespect of, of, of African by African American. So this was a complex, even among Muslims actually, and, and certainly here, the mosque, Malcolm Shabazz Mosque in Midtown Manhattan were the headquarters of all these murids and, and African Muslim in the beginning. Even in that context within Muslims, as I tell in my book, the situation was not always easy. There were really tension. Um, between between these two communities. Over time, things have been smooth. Things have been uh, working better because now, after three decennies, they have known, they have learned to know each other. They have built relationship that are more, um, uh, you know, smoother and, and and certainly personable. And things have changed, but the tension actually remain um, still today. Mm -hmm. Now uh, we are. Uh, nearing the end of this interesting conversation. I wish we could talk more about the other chapters, but I don't want to <laughs> ruin it for uh, the audience who has not had the chance yet to read this wonderful book. And I encourage uh, my listeners to really get this book as well as the first book of Professor Babu on uh, Shah Bamba and Muridia. So, uh, Babu, would you allow me just to respond to one question you asked, which I didn't respond to? The yes. gentrification, the gentrification yes, yes. question. Of yeah. course, of course. Yeah. Go ahead. What is really sad, uh, and, and, and that the last chapter of my book is the fact that these murid that really help rejuvenate Central Harlem and the African in general, it's not only murid, all the Africans in Little Senegal are being pushed out. They have been, they are becoming victim of their own success. Uh, they rejuvenate this place, they build restaurant, they open store, uh, including hair salon, uh, including barbershops, uh, and, and they made Central Harlem attractive. Uh, and, and, the re and now the, the, the consequence of that is that rich people, mostly white, American, but also Eastern European and Western Europeans, and of course, Colombia spilling into Central Harlem, all of that now is become is making it extremely difficult for uh, these African communities to survive. Those who don't benefit from uh, rent protection are just leaving, and those are the businesses. In some of the places where I went to do my research, and particularly one shop that was dear to my heart, that's where uh, people used to sell Muslim religious paraphernalia. I went there to buy Ahmad Bamba's religious books, Qasidas. I went there to buy cassettes, and VHS, and DVDs of Muslim festivals happening across Senegal. That shop, for example, left years ago because they can no longer afford to pay the rent that is skyrocketing. Um, the hair salons, many of them are now closed. So basically, Harlem is being gentrified, and the African identity that was infused by this migrant is being erased. Now you see um, Whole Foods. 
Now you see 7-Eleven. And now you see uh, all those high-end uh, 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 restaurants, you know, coal-fired uh, uh, pizza places, pizza joint. That's what you see. Uh, basically, the middle class is moving to Harlem and the African are being pushed out. This is not flight. This is not white flight. This is not black fight as happened uh, in the 1980s. These are people who have been coerced actually uh, to leave Harlem. And, and that's the sad part of the story that I tell. So one of the other things also you, you talk about in that chapter is the, the feminization of Senegalese migration in the United States. And also the fact that, um, for instance, hair braiding became one of the main jobs or profession that many of these Senegalese women got involved. So how is that process of feminization happened, but also how has it been contributing to the redefinition of gender roles in the context of Senegalese migration in the United States? I think, Bamba, one of the most fascinating aspects of, of Senegalese migration to the United States is the role of women. Everywhere else you go, men outnumber actually women. Uh, in the case of, of, uh, of, of the United States, there is almost a balance uh, between uh, the number of women and the number of men. And, and, and this was not what happened at the origin. It really happened over time. In the beginning, like in any migration in general, that's really young men who actually move, uh, mostly bachelors. But what happened in the context of the United States was, was two things. Immigration law uh, certainly had a factor in, in it, uh, family unification, the fact that with the lottery, many Senegalese uh, started to have green card and some citizenship, and then once they have it, they can bring their family here. But also work opportunities. Uh, here, women had uh, a niche, Senegalese woman, African woman in general had a niche, and that niche is, is hair braiding. And, and American policies help too, because powerful uh, Senegalese women who came here earlier uh, in the 1980s actually had some connection at the embassy. And they brought here braiders, uh, actually. And, and that, that kind of uh, 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 space open for them continued to be enlarged because many men, when they felt settled now, brought their wife because the wife also can uh, can, can can contribute to the family. And, 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 and this is where your question about gender role become relevant because many of these women actually became breadwinners. And now the complication was uh, the challenges uh, to traditional uh, Muslim Senegalese household ethic and practices. Uh, in the context of Senegal, the man should be the head of the household. He's the breadwinner. He take all his financial responsibilities. The wife, um, ideally, uh, take stay home, take care of the family, take care of the in-laws, the children, and the husband. And, and that's the kind of stable household that Senegalese imagine and Senegalese want. Now, you come to New York City, you have a wife who might be working just 14 hours a day, like you, a taxi driver who is working, working 14 hours a day, who is making even more money than you do, because hair braiders actually still today, I believe, although the situation has changed, unfortunately for the worst, they make more money than their husband. And now the issue is who is the home, who is the breadwinner, and who should be the head of the household. And it's a complicated uh, situation that I think led to very to a large rate of, of high rate of divorce of divorce here in the United States than you see, for example, in Senegal. In my interviews with women. Uh, and these men, they don't hide it. Many men complain about the fact that their wife actually earn more than they do, but still claim that from Senegalese ethic and Senegalese uh, moral uh, uh, and Senegalese moral economy, the husband should be paying for everything. The husband should be paying rent, he should be providing food, he should provide uh, paying for utilities, although the wife, the, the wife is earning more than the, the husband. So th these are very complicated situations that we find in the diaspora and families are still struggling about how to make sense of it. Uh, how can you live in a situation where um, uh, uh, the politics of money challenge traditional ethics and, 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 and gender values and then at the same time be comfortable living like somebody who lives in Senegal? It's complicated and it's still certainly a problem. It's problematic here. Do you know?
Usually before I end the conversation with my guests, I ask what I call the, the fun questions or the lighter questions. Number one being, what are your top three novels? Top three novels you've read. You know, let me think about what I read recently. I really rest in my mind. One of them actually is, is by Mbugar Sar. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's not the one that won the Goncourt, but it's Brotherhood. You know, I teach Islam, uh, Islamic history and the political of Islam, and I like Brotherhood. My son, who is actually 16 years old, uh, read it, and, and I was so delighted because I can't convince him to read anything that is not, that is not <laughs> actually <laughs> Harry Potter <laughs> in those non-fiction. And he read it, and he liked it, and he came to ask me a question about, uh, uh, about this, this novel. Um, mm-hmm. What did I read recently? Uh, I, I read... Uh, uh, Maya Angelou, also, which actually uh, I know what the cage bird thing, uh, cage bird actually thing, uh, it, it, it stay in my mind because it's my first English novel I have ever read. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's when I came here in 1995. This was the first English novel in the English language that I actually uh, I ever read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is... Uh, 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 a novel by Tahar Benjelun. I don't remember the, the title. It's about marriage, I think. Uh, I read it, you know, a, a few years ago. Uh, and it's one really that stuck with my mind because hope of of, of really uh, the kind of interesting dynamics, the struggle mm-hmm. uh, by an artist, actually, with his wife who was younger. And, and this is happening also in the diaspora. Uh, he married a, a, a young Tamazic girl. Tamazic, of course, is another name for Berber. Brought her to France, and they went to the struggle that all these old immigrants actually went through. And it's really a novel, also that I, I would like. I, I like and certain I recommend people to read. Awesome. Now, top three uh, dishes. Well, that one is easier. I am a ball <laughs> ball. <laughs> I am a ball ball, and I like cherry. Uh, cherry. Uh, That's a classic. Cherry. Uh, yeah, I am a ball ball. I'm a fan of cherry, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's my favorite food, especially uh, for dinner. So which I like cherry, but the white one. I don't what, like the red. What kind, what kind of cherry? Because you can have boom, base, uh, seam, or you have no preference. Any cherry, any cherry, if it's sooner. Okay. Any right. cherry, if it's made of millet, the small millet we call uh, sooner. Uh, and 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 cherry seam is is certainly my preferred one, but boom is is all right. I I eat any cherry. Yeah. I really like. I can eat it actually without even the gravy. So I I like it. <laughs> <laughs> the cherry is very versatile. Add milk or milk in it, and then you get yourself a great meal. <laughs> yeah, water and some salt. Water, water salt. yes, <laughs> that's it. Or sugar, actually, if you want. So it's 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 a very versatile meal, as you said. Somebody told me one day that. That was one of the staple food of Shah Bamba, actually. Cherry and 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 water and a little bit of salt. So I don't know how accurate that information is, but I heard that in the past that he was very fond of that that meal. <laughs> it does make sense. I mean, from the from the period, of course, it does make sense from the period, particularly for a Sufi. Mm-hmm. And and as somebody who was an asset, certainly Shah Bamba was an ascetic as you know, he was not a hermit. He was somebody who lived with people and enjoy food and enjoy the company of people. And he write about it. But certainly, cherry was the staple food where at the time where he lived. So it makes mm-hmm. sense then for him to like cherry. Cherry was not widespread. It, it wasn't, was really, yeah. Absolutely, at the time, it was uh, a food for the wealthy. Uh-huh. Uh, it was not something that was widespread at the time. Certainly, uh-huh. perhaps a few people could afford to eat it, but... For Sheikh Ahmed Bamba and his people, cherry was certainly mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the, the staple food. 
So I like Chere. I like Chebujen, mm-hmm. Cheb- but the white one. Mm-hmm. And I like Yasa. Yasa. Yeah. Good choices. Good choices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then now the last question. Top three places you haven't visited yet, but would like to visit sometime soon. That's the easy one. So I am still, you know, mourning the fact that I haven't been to Timbuktu and Jenne before the trouble that are happening down there. Uh, mm. This has been in my bucket list for a long time, but, you know, unfortunately, and um, the situation is now so difficult that it's not safe to travel there. But I'm hopeful that in the future, in the near future, things will, will, will improve there, security will improve there. And I could go and, and enjoy that mm-hmm. architecture, that Sahelian architecture of the 13th, 14th, 15th and 16th century. Mm-hmm. So, um, and the Swahili coast, Zanzibar, um, that that area of, of East Africa is also one of the places that I would like to visit at some point. Uh, from Mombasa uh, back to Zanzibar, I, I really like to to visit that place. And then uh, outside of Senegal, Egypt. Egypt. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Good choices. Good choices. And then on that note, Professor Babu, thank you very much for being my guest on The Africanist. It was a very rich conversation about your book. We hope that you can come back sometime soon to talk more about your research and uh, also to share with us uh, some of your thoughts on contemporary issues in Africa, in Senegal in general. Thank you for your hospitality. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And on that note, I will give you rendezvous next month for another episode of The Africanist with another special guest. In the meantime, stay safe and healthy. Africa,